Come celebrate art, culture, and community in the Little Jamaica neighborhood during the City of Toronto's Cultural Hotspot, a collection of community-led arts events. Enjoy live entertainment, mural painting, storefront exhibits, and much more. The Cultural Hotspot is on now with free family-friendly events taking place until the end of October. To find out what's on, visit toronto.ca slash cultural hotspot. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Well, welcome back in listener land to the Radical Reverend Show. Yet another week this fall. And it's a delight to continue with, with a series that I'm kind of calling Poets, Priests and Politicians, for want of a better handle. Um, you heard in the last couple of weeks uh, from Joel Harden, MPP, and from Mike Schreiner, both at Queen's Park. And today, a little bit different. We're going to talk to someone who's running for trustee. And yeah, I know a lot of you don't even know what that means. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that too. What is a trustee? What do they do? Why is it important to vote for a trustee? Because they're important and all of that. And to do that and um, and just a joy to have it in uh, this episode of the Radical Reverend, I have with me Debbie King. Debbie, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Sherry. So happy to be here with you. So let's start with you. Um, your parent, uh, tell me what that was like to have a child in, in this case, Toronto District School Board during the COVID years. What did that look like for you? And and just generally, and by the way, I should say, because this is radio and not uh, television, that that uh, Debbie is a black woman and has been very active around race issues in TDSB as well. So talk to us, Debbie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a 12 year old uh, who has been enrolled in public school uh, since actually before junior kindergarten. So we took advantage of some uh, early learning programs that are offered uh, by the TDSB. So we've been uh, quite familiar uh, with our local school. And, uh, you know, what I've seen over the last couple of years is probably not different um, than many parents have seen and many people would expect. Um, you know, it's challenges um, all around from a, a 360 degree uh, standpoint, I'd say, thinking about students, thinking about parents and families, thinking about the educators and education workers and administration that are in our schools. I can appreciate uh, the challenges that they've all had through these years. Um, we're all doing our best to stay well, I think, um, primarily, uh, and to continue uh, the learning that needs to continue. Um, and I think what that looks like um, for different ch children, for different families, uh, is something that we're, we're all trying to uh, arrive at. How do we do the best um, for our kids in the situation that we're in? And you started a very uh, influential and important group um, looking at uh, racism in the school system. Talk about that work a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll start by saying, you know, I didn't start there. <laughs> 
you know, it started for me like really organically. I think the way it does for many parents is, uh, you know, starting to volunteer, come into the classroom, spend a half day in the kindergarten class, go out on the field trips. Um, so starting to get engaged that way allowed me to really see what was happening inside the classrooms, inside the schools, and then as well, you know, hearing from parents, hearing from community. Uh, and what we recognized as parents uh, early on was just a gap in opportunity um, for our children, for Black children, um, not seeing so many educators and caring adults in their schools that look like them, that identify and can represent uh, and create a sense of belonging, uh, not seeing a curriculum uh, that reflects those same things. Um, so as parents, one of the initiatives that we took on was volunteering our time to come into the school, come together, partner with the other teachers that had the same interest to offer some extracurricular programming and support that was Black-led, culturally rich, and helped provide uh, a safe space and fill some of those gaps uh, that we thought uh, were needed in the system. What happened along the way, unfortunately, was that, you know, we got uh, a first-hand look and experience of the anti-Black racism and how it plays out at a systemic level. Uh, in the school and, you know, where we started off, I think, uh, very focused on adding programming, which is where many people come from, uh, you know, when they want to contribute to the school, what we really found a need for was advocating, uh, giving a voice uh, to what was happening and challenging what was happening in the system. Uh, and that's what we we're able to do. So, you know, I'm very proud to say that along with offering arts education outings for families safely through a pandemic. We did all of that while challenging policies, while uh, delegating for a new director of education, um, you know, while doing all of that hard work to confront the systemic barriers that are resulting in uh, outcomes that are not satisfactory and not comparable uh, to what other student populations are achieving. Maybe, um, could you give us an example of, of uh something like that because i think those who aren't as involved as you have been uh in the school system and both as a parent and as a volunteer and as an activist you know don't have a sense of uh you know many people are working especially in the area you're, you're running and i should say that debbie uh king is running for trustee in the parkdale high park ward um you know, many people in our ward work several jobs, you know, they don't have the time to volunteer or be active. They're kind of trusting the system. Um, where were the short gaps you saw? If you could give an example of that, uh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to your point, so many people are busy and uh, we don't assume that every parent is reading every email or sitting in on those board meetings the way some of us are. are. Um, so one of the gaps that we saw and it was, um, you know, quite significant was the lack of communication and lack of transparency about what was happening in the school when it happened. Um, so when we had uh, some very outrageous uh, incidents of anti-Black racism, uh, what came to light was that it was not shared with the community in a timely fashion. There were people within that building, Black staff, Black students, Black teachers and volunteers who were targeted, who were not safe, uh, and that wasn't shared. 
And that was something that was important, not just for the, the Black students and families and teachers impacted, but the entire school community, because that affects the safety and the culture uh, of, of everything going on. Uh, so a big part of our work was really uh, just sharing some information uh, with parents so that they understood what was happening, that they could add their voice, and many very much wanted to, uh, and that we could put some pressure on the board as well uh, for accountability, for communication, uh, and to let them know what our expectations are uh, and what their responsibility is uh, as the leaders uh, and the ones that are, are meant to be keeping us safe here. And you're running to be one of those leaders. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, most people, you know, the turnout, as we saw in the last provincial election, was abysmally low. Like people just said, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Was uh, <laughs> should have been on the ballot. What's the point? Um, and so just didn't turn out. And notoriously, you know, uh, civic elections are even usually worse, right? People just don't show up. Mm -hmm. They barely know what their counselors do. And then there's this, you know, trustee thing on the ballot. And people are like, well, you know, what's unless you are directly as involved and active in a school as you are, even parents with kids in schools aren't really clear about what trustees do. So what do trustees do and why is it important? You're absolutely right, Sherry. And this is a big part of what I'm doing at the door. You know, I'm absolutely wanting to hear input and feedback from parents, um, but largely with community members it's sharing uh, this information that they're hearing for the first time. So what I tell them is that as their trustee, I am their representative and their voice on the school board. The school board is responsible for setting priorities, for making large policy decisions, budget decisions, um, setting the multi-year strategic plan that guides and informs uh, the way we work over a four-year period. So it's really important that the person in that seat, in that role, is able to represent that community voice well. I believe that person needs to be a critical thinker. They need to come out of community. They need to have that compassion to understand how these policies, how these decisions are actually impacting children and families in the classroom and in their lives. Um, but it does also take, uh, you know, some experience and some savvy in terms of governance, in terms of being able to work with and engage uh, different stakeholders uh, and to help arrive at not only those decisions, but also, you know, the new ideas and uh, to move forward uh, in the way that we want to progress things as well. Now, we have a government in uh, at Queen's Park, and I've been pretty upfront about this. <laughs> Um, that is not particularly focused on the public side of public education. Um, just sent out uh, basically what I see is, and many educators and others see as a bribe to parents, um, a very small amount, you know, you know, estimates differ, but 50 to $70 a family for tutoring, which as we all know, will not go far at all. Um, and, at all. Uh, at all. Um, rather than putting it into the school system and has decided to pick a, a fight with educators before, you know, before the negotiations have really got underway. Um, clearly, there's a move to privatization, to defunding, which they have done. Uh, and in the past, we saw under the Mike Harris government, another conservative government in this province, 
we saw again cuts to education, particularly cuts to the role of the trustee and the and the boards and to salaries. So you're walking into a job that doesn't pay very well and that to, that's supposed to be part time, but you know, let's face it, really isn't. Um, uh, so I mean, I guess first of all, I'm going to ask you is is you know, uh, what made you take that make that decision because it's not an easy one to make. And you have yeah. another profession and you can talk a little bit about that. So it's going to take you away from that. Um, and um, and again, what's it going to look like when you're up against a government that really doesn't have your back? Mm -hmm. All really great questions, really valid questions. You know, I think or I know what motivated me was a sense of calling, a sense of responsibility and service being around the school as much as I have been, you know, being engaged, as I've mentioned, uh, and seeing, you know, so many wonderful things. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to act as if there aren't wonderful people and great things happening in our, in our schools as well, but really seeing those challenges uh, and, again, seeing the need to have diverse voices represented well is really what um, motivated me uh, to get into the role. Um, I think that you know that if you are a community organizer, if you are involved in parent council, if you're doing any of these roles, you're already accustomed to volunteering uh, a lot of your time to that energy uh, and that kind of work. So I look at this as a natural progression and continuation uh, of that work. Um, I'm one of the few people that's in a unique pos position where I have uh, a two-income household. And uh, for many years now, I have worked uh, freelance and contract um, and not worked full-time hours. So moving into a trustee position, which as you've said, uh, is compensated as if it's part-time, but the responsibility and, and doing it well, I believe means doing it full-time. Um, I'm in a position uh, really thankfully that allows me to make that shift without it being a big change in my lifestyle. Um, but I also recognize this is very unique for me, and I don't think there are uh, many people that could make the same decision, especially uh, not in the times that we're in now. And that poses a whole other question and discussion around equity and about who's able to take on this position and, and to do that role. Um, so that's one whole thing, um, you know, and then going into there, you know, with this zest, with this energy, um, with this absolute passion, to do whatever we can to stand up to this attack. Um, it, it sometimes feels futile, I'll be honest. Um, you know, I question, I sit here and, and I talk and I try to wrap my head around what is the magic answer? How do we break through when we have a provincial government that is so anti-public education? We are fighting tooth and nail for everything. We are fighting for the proper investments that we need for buildings that are standing up and in proper repair. We're fighting for the funding to offer the breadth of programming that our kids need, like special needs and arts and outdoor education. Those are all things that support their wellness, their creativity, all of the things that they need to, to boost in this time kind of post-pandemic. And I, I'm saying that with little quotey fingers, post-pandemic. Um, but you know, we're also fighting to make sure that all of the caring adults and staff within our buildings are properly compensated and respected so they can be well and they can do their jobs well and they can provide for their families as well. I think that we forget that many of the people in those roles are teachers, 
our educational assistants or early childhood educators, many of them are parents as well. So they're feeling this on both sides. And uh, like I said, fighting tooth and nail to get the respect and the investment that we need. Uh, I think her voices are critical at this point, And I think it's everybody's voices. I think it's parents. I think it's the educators. I think it's community members that don't necessarily feel like they have a connection or a vested interest because they might not have children in school or they might not work in a school. But schools are here to serve our entire society. They are what prepare our children to be well, to be successful, to reach their potential and to come out and be the leaders, the workers, the people that make up our world. So we all have a vested interest in this. And I think it's time that we all come together, get very clear on what's happening, get very loud about what's happening. Um, I would really like to see information about our education uh, system coming from people in the know, uh, not necessarily coming predominantly from media where we see the spin uh, that the government uh, wants to put, and you, that was a perfect example, Sherry, you know, the difference between putting $255 million directly into the education system or, you know, a payout of $75 to $100 to parents, which one's going to go further? Simple math, right? Um, so it will be uh, it will be an uphill battle, but it's an important battle, and uh, I really hope that we have 22 strong trustees around that board table that are willing to take up that fight together. Uh, speaking to Debbie King here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you've just tuned in, and if you just tuned in, you've missed some. So I would suggest that you follow us also on podcast, which is up a couple of weeks after you hear this show. Um, we have civic elections coming up in October. Um, Debbie's running for trustee in Park Delphi Park, and um, I make no bones about it. I endorse people, and I'm endorsing her, so there you go. Um, I, I, I want to talk to you about what happens if we don't. <laughs> um, you know, just the specter of, uh, for example, the American system in many states. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what people maybe aren't aware of uh, is that you know, when you underfund the public school system, when you starve it, and you mentioned the buildings, I mean, you know, fix our buildings has been a, a chant for parents across uh, the TDSB board forever and ever. I mean, our, our buildings are in terrible, uh, terrible disrepair. Um, I, I remember, you know, one building, this was, you know, just pre-COVID when all the kids were in classes where kids had to wear their overcoats in winter because the heating system didn't work. Um, others where, you know, it's boiling hot in the portables in the summer where, you know, what do you do? Even you, you open the windows, it's still boiling hot, um, hard for little kids to learn, right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if if the, the system gets so bad, which we're seeing not only in education, but healthcare, subject for another mm -hmm. show, um, if you defund it enough, people with means will be, well, they'll feel they're forced to take their children out and put them in private schools, which by the way, you know, 25 to 30,000 a year, just for day school students and more, depending on where you send them in, in the GTA. Um, and people without means who don't have that kind of money lying around, um, will be forced to kind of put up and often shut up about the situation because, um, there's no money there to do much about it. Um, you know, th this has been the situation for many in the United States and many states for a while now. And clearly that's the direction that this government is heading in. Um, so 
trustees are important, uh, you know, <laughs> support to, to prevent that from happening. But um, just just kind of asking you, uh, is there have you seen this happening? I mean, this move of parents. Um, I mean, I certainly have, but I'm wondering you're closer to the ground now. My kids are long since out of the school system. Um, you know, have you seen like parents that level of frustration in the parents as well as, of course, the staff? Somewhat. Um, I, generally across the board, uh, I think it's pretty clear what's happening and I, I, there is some concern about it. There's a lot of concern about it. Um, it varies depending on who I speak to and I think this is very telling of, of what that direction means for folks. Um, so in neighborhoods and communities, speaking with folks that have uh, resources and have the kinds of options that you're talking about, Sherry, to consider uh, either private education or consider, um, you know, homeschooling or some kind of variation on that um, kind of private uh, community uh, hub. Uh, I'm losing the word right now, but I know that there's a word for it. Um, people who have the ability to look at those options um, are absolutely weighing them um, and often, you know, making a choice that they don't necessarily want to make. So they might have the means to pay for private education. Value system wise, um, it might not be what they would have been leaning toward. Um, even with the resources, it might not be a comfortable decision to make financially. And again, you know, we're all, regardless of what income level you're at, we're all dealing with inflation. We're all dealing with the, the reality of the economy right now. So they're being forced to make decisions that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have made. Um, but then what I'm seeing in a community like mine, and I'm in South Parkdale, uh, where we've got a, a very mixed community, a lot of newcomers, uh, a lot of renters, tenants, a lot of low-income families. I'm hearing a lot of frustration with the system, but without those options of somewhere else to look. And that's the frightening part, uh, Sherry. I don't think any of us should be having to look at options outside of the public system, period. We should be confident in knowing that we can get the excellent education that we need and want within the system, but it becomes ex extremely frightening, disparaging, and unacceptable when there are marginalized or certain parts of the community that simply will not have an option and will have to deal with uh, a substandard uh, education. Uh, it's not good for the students. It's not good for the families. Um, I'd have to predict that what it means for educators is many of them are gonna make a hard choice as well. Um, about where they need to be and where they need to work in order to sustain their livelihood uh, and their career. Um, so it puts us in a, a terrible position overall. And I feel most, again, for you know low income, uh, sorry, I don't even wanna say low income, economically challenged families, for racialized families, you know, for all the ones that are already you know, struggling and feeling the the inequities of this system, um, that's just going to be compounded and uh, and just yeah, <laughs> it's uh, not good. It's not fair. It's not just, and it's not right. Exactly. Um, speaking here to Debbie King, uh, trustee uh, candidate for Parkdale High Park in the west end of the downtown core, and uh, you heard if you've been listening about what a trustee does. And they really do represent the voice of the community. Um, one of the growing trends, which is um, questionable to say the least, uh, in our public system is the raising of funds. Um, uh, you know, 
from the community to pay for everything, uh, even playgrounds, mm -hmm. even even items that you would think these are necessities in a school. Uh, funding is going to, to that. And, and Debbie, and you and I, when we spoke earlier, I said, I don't remember that being a big factor when my kids were in school and certainly wasn't when I was in school in the Ontario system. Uh, and, you know, now you see the discrepancy from school to school where that's the case, because, of course, in low income areas, I should say economically challenged areas, um, you know, okay, parents just don't have the money to contribute to schools uh, for whatever the fundraising uh, object is. Whereas in schools that are in wealthier districts, they do. Um, and I mentioned the instance of, you know, a fundraiser at the old mill, black tie versus children's art for sale. And who do you think made the most money? Uh, this seems to me, again, a, a real question of equity and uh, the schools that benefit directly from that in those areas. Um, you know, just say something about fundraising because it's become a major part of school budgets now. Yeah, and I think even the fact that it's an expectation to be a part and it's become normalized that that's a part of that is, is problematic. So, you know, I grew up in Toronto schools and the only fundraiser I really remember is the Scholastic Book Fair, <laughs> which I don't even know if that was positioned as, <laughs> as a fundraiser. It was just a wonderful uh, school sale for me. Um, but I've absolutely seen the kind of discrepancy uh, that you're talking about. Um, and I don't think it should be upon schools to to generate so much funds on their own. Again, this is the funding that we are already paying into through our taxes, should be coming through the government, being dispersed in an equitable way so it can serve those different schools and the different school communities that do have different resources and different needs. Um, we're really just exacerbating, you know, that have, that have not, uh, and that division. Uh, when we allow this uh, to continue. So I'm hoping that that's one of the things, um, you know, that we can continue to address together. Again, making sure that we have the funding that we need and not relying so much on school-generated funds. Um, but in the meantime, where we do have the realities of shortfalls and parents are stepping in to pay for things like technology, laptops in the classrooms, um, you know, paying for basic school supplies to add to rooms, like the basics that should be there. Parents are stepping in with their own resources, their own time, their own energy to do this. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful that they do, but they should not have to. And uh, in the time being, when we do, let's figure out how to do it more equitably. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Debbie King, I'm a candidate for trustee in Parkdale High Park area. We're just about to go into a new school year, Debbie. And we just have a few minutes left. And I wanna talk about that. Um, you know, there's also supposed to be yet another wave of COVID on the horizon. So um, safety in classrooms. I mean, I certainly heard from staff around this, you know, when COVID was at its peak. Now, hopefully we have a more vaccinated population that are going to school. Um, but things like ventilation, um, you know, sick days, uh, that, let, let's speak a little bit about safety going back, because I know I've heard from families where they're concerned just about the safety in the classroom. And then, and then the challenge is, you know, if they're not feeling safe about hybrid teaching, you know, <laughs> let's talk, let's talk about that going back to school in September, how, how do we make it safe? 
Yeah, we're not out of the woods yet. And, uh, you know, I think that there is um, a lot of uncertainty among parents. Um, you know, we're all hoping, uh, you know, to arrive in September, we're looking for uh, a year with no disruption or at least less disruption. Um, and I don't know that anybody feels like they really have a, a guarantee for that right now. Many of the things that we called for earlier on, smaller class sizes, um, you know, better ventilation in our buildings um, is not in place. Uh, we have other measures in place and we're going to, uh, I think, have to hope, uh, you know, that those work uh, as best they can in the layers that we do have. Um, but it continues to be a concern and I don't think that will be any quieter about it. Um, it's a concern for, again, uh, parents, sorry, teachers and education workers showing up in the building, uh, as well as for our families, too. Well, here's to a safe September, we all hope. Uh, and Debbie, thank you so much for being on the Radical uh, Reverend Show. It's been a delight. Um, do stay tuned out there in listener land. We're moving to a poet next. Um, and we're going to talk about a whole other aspect of life. Uh, but if you're a parent, uh, if you have children in the school system, wherever you live, um, certainly I would advise you talk to your member of provincial parliament and say, get the money flowing. Right? Would you agree with that, Debbie? <laughs> 100%. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stay tuned on the Radical Reference Show. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And as you all know out there in listener land, if you've been following along this September, we are doing a series that I, I'd like to call it Poets, Priests and Politicians. There's an alliteration there for sure, um, but they all have something in common. And in particular today, the woman that I'm going to be speaking to has a lot in common with both ministry and, uh, and politics. She is a poet laureate at Roncesvalles United Church, which some of you may know used to be my church way back in the day, um, pre-2006. Uh, and her name is Margot von Sleitman, and she uh, is not only a poet, but a social justice activist, and we're going to talk to her about that. So, Margot, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Sherry. A pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start when you were um, a young girl and what really became the template for a lot of the work that you do much later on. Tell us what happened. Sure. Well, um, my family is from uh, British, what used to be British Guyana, South America, from Georgetown. My mom and dad chose Canada for a better and safer life. And fast forward nine years, my dad at 40 was uh, callously murdered in a Brinks robbery um, in, in Scarborough. And even prior to my dad's murder, my dad's name is Theodore, uh, Theodore Vance Lightman. Uh, prior to his murder, I was writing poetry and um, words have been extremely important in my life. And definitely after my father was murdered, I began to write um, basically to make sense of that brutal uh, Easter Monday March 27, 1978, I began to write poetry as a way to, yes, make uh, make sense and, and to heal. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you have done uh, such a lot of work in restorative justice and social justice. And in fact, you're working um, uh, or have worked on a paper for Justice Canada. Maybe tell us a little bit about that paper and what you're advocating. By the way, Margot is also a teacher, so I should mention that. Um, and of course, teaches in this area. Yeah. So the, what's your paper about? Well, I was commissioned to write a paper on victim-led restorative justice. Essentially, the question I was given is, if restorative justice is so great, why do so few people choose it? Why do they, um, they're not drawn to it? And so I researched that, and the essence of it is that there is a, a misunderstanding of what restorative justice is and what it can be. So my paper is entitled Sabona, Victim-Led Restorative Justice. Now, Sabona um, is a, a Zulu word and it means I see you. But firstly, it is hello and it means I see you. And the essence of what I see is our shared humanity. That paper that I wrote was basically saying that often when people think of restorative justice, Sherry, they're thinking of sitting down with the murderer, with the rapist. They are thinking of the other F word, forgiveness. And those are huge asks and huge expectations. Sabona says, we are in shared humanity. We do not have to be new best friends tomorrow afternoon. We don't have to meet our father's murderer, which I met one of them 30 years after he killed my father because of poetry. Um, at any rate, when restorative justice is seen as simply shared humanity, then we could get into the pieces of what victims of crime want and we give options to victims of crime, which in turn means that the people that have done the harm also have options. So restorative justice is essentially that. We're in shared humanity. Don't worry about the F word. Don't worry about being you know, better than God. We are humans. I don't have to like you, but I will not wish you harm when you are in jail. And I don't want bad things to happen to you when you're in prison. That matters to me. That matters to me. And I, I believe it is, it is significant to treat human beings with dignity, even if we don't like them and they don't like us. Speaking to uh, Margot uh, Van Sleipman here on the Radical Reverend Show, uh, our, our poet um, slash, I almost want to put you in the priest category, Marco, as well, um, talking here about forgiveness. You mentioned the meeting with your father's murderers. Um, yes. Tell us about that. Well, there were three men that murdered Theodore. And um, one day I was waiting for an email from a spirituality center in um, in Vancouver, excuse me, in Victoria, confirming a weekend that I was going to facilitate with circle and poetry. Well, lo and behold, I get an email from British Columbia, and I, I saw that it was from uh, the man who, well, the wife of the man who murdered my father. I saw the name, and I was quite 
you know, we'll just put it this way, 30 years after, um, the bottom line is, I saw that email, and I just said, you know, I would like an apology, please. That was, <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> I'm laughing now, because in a way, it's, that's what I wanted. I wanted that. And um, so we decided to meet. I decided there were three men that murdered Theodore. I met the one whose bullet basically, you know, did the deed, if you will. So my dad wore two bullets. He wore one in his, just beside his heart and one in his back. And the, they found me because I had received an award from the National Association for Poetry Therapy. Um, the award was for, you know, writing books on poetry as healing. At any rate, we met and we shared a very powerful, powerful healing. The bit of irony with that is fast forward a few years later. So, you know, sometimes we did work together. We shared talks together in prisons, etc. But um, a few years ago, then he, he said it really wasn't him that murdered my father. It was crushing. At the same time, I have to tell you, uh, a friend of mine, um, Andrew, said to me, he said, of course, it is crushing, but what is Sabona all about? We are humans. We're in shared humanity. We can, you know, things happen, but your commitment is to that. So it was ironic, and, and but Sabona and poetry and a rich and kind community reminded me I can still work with and for victims and offenders, you know, and I, I'm grateful for that. Very grateful for Sabona. Marco, can you share one of your poems with us now? Pick with, pleasure. with pleasure. I'm going to read from my book called um, The Other Inmate. And um, with COVID now sort of uh, becoming part of our uh, lived um, reality, I have been invited back to Grand Valley Institution to share poetry and circle there. And I have been to that, um, that jail before. So I'm going to read, Let Us Listen. And this is from my book, The Other Inmate, Mediating Justice, Mediating Hope. Listen, it's a mad, mad world, and I am filled with words. Words I want to spill upon a page, upon pages and pages and pages. I can't make any promises. Well, maybe one. I will tell my truth. I will write my story. Just listen, please. I will listen to your story, too. Thank you. Speaking here to uh, Margot uh, Van Sleipman and speaking not only about her poetry, but about her work in the restorative justice and faith communities that she's involved with. Um, so, you know, this is, I, I'm sure to our listeners, fascinating that you met with your father's you know murderers and one wonders i mean my, my immediate question is you wanted an apology did you get it and what did that sound like what did they say approximately well i only met one i only met one but i will tell you just when covid started the other two emailed me 
like just, I, I mean, it was mind blowing. So I'm going to answer that second piece first. Um, I said to them, I do not want to meet you. I wish you well. And I thank you for reaching out and goodbye. That that was it. So that, you know, and that was literally just, you know, two years ago. Eh? The one that I met, it was powerful and it was profound. And even though he changed his story a few years ago, I know that it was genuine. I feel it in my bones. Uh, I tried to say, oh my God, what a waste and all this, but I do not lie to myself and my, my body and my heart and my soul know what I know. So that remains in me because I had also met, there was the head, the head chaplain of the prisons in um, out West. His name is Jerry Ayat. He's retired now. But when my dad's murderer and I first met, Jerry said to me, He's, and we weren't good friends then, but we are now, mentor, lovely soul. But he said to me, remember, Margot, no matter what happens in the future, this moment happened. This moment happened. And we, we had done a ritual in a grotto at the um, Westminster Abbey in, um, in BC, and it was profound and powerful. We had um, a, a wonderful indigenous uh, elder by the name of Tony Bob. He presided over that. So it is it is profound, life-changing. And again, even with his changing of that story, I know it happened. And I know that we are human beings and we are always in process. We are not product. And that's why I adore poetry as well. <laughs> And let's talk about that. Um, again, if you're just tuning in, uh, you've missed a bit, but you can always hear this uh, both on the website at CIUT 89.5 FM. And of course, in a matter of a week or so, it will be on podcast and wherever you get your podcast, SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever, it will be there. Speaking to Margot Van Sleipman about, uh, first of all, the murder of her her father when she was quite young and and how that has really inspired what I would call her ministry um, since then. Um, let's talk about poetry as healing, because I think that might be a novel concept to a lot of people out there who think, oh, poetry, oh, well, it's pretty, it's nice, it's lovely, blah, blah. But how exactly does it heal? Talk about that a bit. Well, yes, poetry, just even that word, it is only fancy people that can write poetry. You have to be some sort of, you know, mystic or something. No, I will tell you. It is going directly, directly to emotion. So, you know, what I do, this is the process that I go through. I ask a question, I read a poem, and I say to the folks with whom I am, and to myself, when I'm, I do this all the time, huh? how do you feel? What do you want? You know, um, I, I will, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of how. So here is a poem, it's called We Are. The randomness of calamity, which was once my searing ache, has become the very, very echo of my questions, of my answers, now resonating only with beauty of a source whose flow has returned. I am, I am abundance. I am breathed, I am clarity, I am calamity, I am creativity, I am community. 
we are Sabona. So I read a piece, I will read that, and then I throw out the question, dialogue on these pages about what it means to be breathed. Now, poetry basically does not say you are writing a big thesis, a big paper, write down, throw the words onto the page, let your emotions decide what they want to see. You know, it was uh, Eliot, uh, it was a T.S. Eliot that said um, uh, that we know the emotion before we know the word. Hmm? That's how we can actually have the word. That's how it heals. And this is not, this is not simply about yeah, you know, the world is beautiful, and he murdered my dad, and I know we're in shared humanity. Hell, you know, my dad was pretty, <laughs> he was the anchor. Mommy and daddy were extremely, mom still is, Bridget is her name, just turned 81. Daddy was 40 when he was murdered. But no, we are talking brutality, we're talking anger and anguish. And the, the language that poetry invites to the page it says, say it all. You know, I've been into prisons where I just have half hour, huh? half hour, and we have to scrounge for pencils. We have to scrounge for pencils and scrounge for paper. And I am telling you, Sherry, what is birthed in those moments is, is living justice. It is poetic justice. So the brevity, the clarity, and the momentary now. That is how it works. You are listening to the Radical Reverend Show, and I'm talking, uh, and it's a delight to talk to Margot Van Sleipman uh, about her life, her work, her poetry, and uh, restorative justice. Restorative justice, and I know the F word, forgiveness. Um, and you, you spoke at the very beginning of this discussion about how that's not being picked up the way that you were hoping that it would be. Uh, and as a poet, as a priestess, <laughs> as a social justice worker, perhaps maybe elaborate, um, not so much on that, but why, why are we still building prisons? Why are we still so committed to retribution and revenge um, as a, a justice model? Because we know, I mean, most people know that not a lot of rehabilitation goes on in, in prisons these days or any days. Um, so really the honesty about it is we want retribution, we want revenge. Why have we shifted you know, so gradually from that model? Well, I have to tell you, I, <laughs> there are so many responses to that. The first one that comes to me automatically is fear. Fear, fear of being responsible fear of caring, not because we cannot do this. We are, we are human. That's what we do. Even when we don't like people, we care for them. When they don't like us, they, they care for us. I think fear is huge. I think there's also not yet sufficient articulation and re-articulation of what justice is and can be. So we need to, as society, as community, we need to continue to shift the language. And also, you know, this business of forgiveness can be very daunting to people. Somehow you have to all of a sudden turn into some saint. I've had people say to me at, you know, talks and stuff, I wanna be just like you, you're a saint. I said, well, if a saint can say the other F word with uh, equanimity and freedom, um, then that's me. If you want to meet my daughters who will tell you, 
that's what a saint is, do that. So the point is this, we need to change the language and we need to, I will say it, media, because that is our that, that is our way. I mean, for me, poetry is media. For the work that you have been doing for uh, ages, Sherry, that is media. And we do it in grassroots ways. I do it with my students. You know, I'm back in the fall there, face to face. I talk, I teach global citizenship within the context of Sabona. It is planting seeds and it's getting the information out there to say, how does retribution help you? You know, and here's another thing. I was speaking with someone yesterday and I said, you know, it's really, really uh, funny. Folks think that I'm, you know, I'm nice and I'm loving and I'm kind. I'm all of those things, you know. However, I said, I'm also really practical. Think about it. You're going to throw people in jail. You're going to treat them like garbage. You know, a, a dear men, another mentor and dear friend of mine, Senator Kim Pate, we have talked about this. How many people have mental illness in prisons? How many? All right. So you're going to take people, put them in solitary confinement, treat them like garbage, and then think, yeah, and we're going to let these human beings back into community and into society. And yeah, everything is going to be fixed. That is illogical. My practicality says, you know what? There, I have no emotions. Basically, I'm just, you know, I don't care. However, my practicality says, excuse me, you treat someone like garbage? Guess what you are going to get? You are harming yourself then. Become extremely selfish. Become selfish for your grandchildren, of which I have four and I adore. All right? Become selfish. So selfish that you care for others because it's good for you. That is my... I, I get very upset by it because I just think, how? How? And then, okay, you want to build them? Go ahead, build them. Then do something in them. Make them penitentiaries, what they were supposed to be, you know, back in the day when they were throwing women in jail because they couldn't feed their kids, because they couldn't have a job, because somebody raped that, you, you, you know. Okay. Sherry, I know you know this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, speaking to Margot um, Van uh, Steichman here, and a poet, uh, priest, and and obviously also involved in in political change too. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's, but there, you know, I, I I can hear the but out there in the listeners who perhaps are victims of some sort um, and don't feel that they're saints and don't feel that they can forgive and do want to be protected from whomever and do want to make sure that they, you know, so, so apart from physically removing that threat and putting them behind bars, which has been what we've been doing, um, you know, I, I, I can hear that voice. You hear that voice too. And you are that voice in part. So, so how, how do you respond to, let's pick a woman, a woman who has been abused, attacked, as a, afraid, probably living under assumed name somewhere, does not want to confront this person, to confront them would be dangerous for her and her children. Um, what, what, do you, what do you do for her? in this new system that we are all committed to building, quite frankly, yeah. In this new system, we build healing shelters. We build centers where there is support because that woman, 
why the hell should she meet the guy who raped her or the, who, whomever, you know? Why? And that that is often what ends up happening. I, my voice just went quite high there, but why can there not be places, like a, a place, a community within a community, a center where this woman and her child and children ca can go and, and be looked after, but not only be looked after, have her agency, have her agency, make it in a way so it is not uh, making the victim double victim by saying, no, no, no we're going to do all this for you. you. Just come here. We're going to serve you and, you know, get the hell out of Dodge kind of thing. Healing centers are extremely important. And I will tell you, not every single soul can be out in society. That is not a possibility. However, when you are having people within you know the con that they're within con jails we'll just say jails all right call it a call it a jail that's what it is you have folks in there how are they being treated what are the services that are being offered and this is not about you're throwing away your money on bad guys because i will tell you the second that your loved one gets into jail your little peach that has mental illness gets into a jail all of a sudden there is a big question. Well, what services are you know? What services are there? Oh, zero. When are they going to get their meds? Oh, they don't. So that is my, my response. Is not you know shut everything down. My response is okay. This is what we have. So my mom always says, "You got a dime, you make that dime work." And I'm good at it. I raised two girls on very few dimes. Get into those prisons and have people in there who care. And here's the other, here's the other accountability is extremely important, you know, and I have met many, so you know, I've been to lots of prisons all over this country and around the globe, you know, but there are lots of guards and wardens that want to do more. They don't have the supports. And can you imagine what it's like every single day? And, you know, I've spent time as well with Sister Helen Prejean, who I find just, she is just down to earth, you know. But she, she also talked about this thing. When we get people to kill people, for example, we don't have it in this country, capital punishment. But you know what happens to the people who kill those people? Within no time flat, they die. Also, I, had, I knew someone, well, I dated someone a long time ago whose dad was a prison guard. And his dad was the biggest abuser you'd ever want to meet. Why would a person do that? So my that's a long answer. My answer is, okay, we've got jails. All right, then turn them into healing centers. Turn them into healing centers. And let's train and teach the guards and the wardens, and, and because we're in shared humanity with them too, so that they can administer. Margot, this has been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to the Radical Reverend Show here in CIUT 89.5 FM. And again, this will go to podcast in a very short while after this is broadcast. Um, been an absolute pleasure to speak to, as I say her name again, Margot Van, uh, Van Sleikman and, um, and her work, which is remarkable. Thank you for your work. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can take us out, Margot, with a poem. I will. I will do that. Prisoner. Prisoner of sheer futility begging and begging to be made whole by the vision, wisdom, voice of the mentors. Yet, what must it mean to enter dark night and fish therein for the potent voice of recognition 
Must it mean palpitations and sweaty palms? Must I dive with only maybes and trying questions? My song wishes to be heard. My little sincerities know their pace, have earned their freedoms. Perhaps, 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 the words escaping these timid fingertips crave a trust that issues in this outlined moment. Perhaps the prison doors are made of sweet, cool air, and I am allowed to leave. Amen to that, sister. Thank you so much. And by the way, um, on the Radical Reverend Show, we always invite your feedback. Your comments will always be responded to. Uh, Margot, thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Until next time.